Anyway, we had a great Easter. We actually had, um, we had 217 people part of our service, which it was great. And we, numbers are not everything, but they are something. And it, it, there's signs of, um, these are the same, if we go back in time, Alana was telling me, this is um, a similar number to like back in 2014. So like we are, um, we are, when I came, the average weekly attendance was 96. And uh, you know, it's smattering of folks. And uh, now we see God working and bringing us together as a community, loving each other, loving God, loving others, loving the city of Orange. And it's just wonderful to see what God is doing. He's at work. He's been so gracious to us. Has God been good to us? It's just been a, a wonderful chance to see God at work and all of a chance to reflect on that in this sermon a little bit here. But um, we're back in the Gospel of John. Like the story's not over. We, we had a mid we took a mid-Easter break in the Gospel of John. We still got about half of it to go. But the last half of the Gospel of John, the first half, is about these seven signs that Jesus performs. And John is clear. He's like, Jesus did a lot of other things other than these things. And he doesn't mean to be comprehensive in the Gospel of John, but he does mean to give seven solid signs. Um, that seven is a number of completion. It, like these are, This is what you need in order to see Jesus and believe in him. And one of the things during, as Jesus is doing the signs, one of the things that starts to happen is people will say, like his mother will say, hey, they're out of wine, and, and she's like, can you do something about that? And he's like, my hour has not yet come. My hour is not yet come. And in the first half of the Gospel of John, it's a lot of like, it's not my time. The time has not yet come. The time has not yet come. But when we get to chapter 12, the Gentiles start to come to Jesus after he comes in in, this, in the triumphal entry, and Jesus now, my hour has come. And in that, we, we pivot in the gospel of John from what people, what scholars call the book of signs in the first half, 1 through 12, to now the book of glory, which is the, the last half of the gospel of John. And it just so happens that the book of glory, the last half of the gospel of John from chapter 13 on, all takes place essentially on the last night of before Jesus is killed and his resurrection appearances. And so as we make this pivot now, we're going to be looking at this last night again. So we're going to be re going back to, eventually back to our Good Friday service, back to the death of Jesus and kind of noting some other things, taking a, a more... Um, a, a longer look at some of that. And today we're looking at the Last Supper as John remembers it. And so as we kind of set the scene to where we are in the Gospel of John, this is where we are. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to John chapter 13. We're going to be looking at really the whole of that chapter. Tracy had a great read of just those 15 verses, which is what we kind of want to focus on here. But we're going to be doing beyond that as well. So have your Bibles open for that. If you don't have a Bible, you can look in the Pew Bible. Table of Contents is there. Find the Gospel of John. As we set the scene, John 13, verse 1, it says, Before the feast of Passover, Jesus knew that his hour had come. Right? This is it. So after my hour has come, Jesus knows that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. And it says a number of things as Jesus is about to do what he's going to do. It says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. That could also mean not just to the end of his life, but he loved them as much as he could. That during supper, and the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray him. 
Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God, he was going back to God. This is the important thing. Jesus knew he had had given, all authority had been given to him from the Father. He knew that he was going to go. He knew that all things had been given into his hands, that he had come from God. He was going back to God. And it said then that he rose from the table. Okay, now what I, what I want to do today is the, the Last Supper in Matthew, Mark, and Luke has various details to it. Like, for example, that Jesus takes bread. He says, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. John does not remember those details. I think John assumes that everybody who's reading his gospel is is aware of the tradition of the Last Supper. And so John is going to provide some other meal details. And in order for us to understand the other meal details, and I've talked about this before, but I wanted to kind of reiterate that, what we need to understand is a formal dining arrangement of the first century of the ancient world, which is called a triclinium. And I have here three tables here, but these three tables, they really describe, I'm going to make really a camera, is going to have to follow me. I'm going full, full uh, spectrum today, okay? Um, yeah, all right, I'm on the spectrum, okay? That's, I guess, the, the idea. And no jo- no laughs. All right, everybody, these three tables, okay, thank you, mockery laughter, that's great, I'll take whatever I can get. These three tables represent three three couches, so a triclinium, tri, three, cline are couches, okay, three couches. Now, and what would happen is in a formal dining arrangement, this is like for like little people, um, it, like that would be about this long, okay? And it, so imagine this is a smaller version of this. You could probably fit about 12 to 15 people around a full scale of this. So imagine kind of the full size of this stage, but, we have, but here we have a smaller version of it. And in the middle, so in the, these three couches on the outside, and you would have a table in the middle where the food would put, be put. And what would happen is that you would have people and they would come and they would recline on these couches they would recline, and like, like I had done before, I've done plenty of reclining on this stage. I don't want to put you all through that again. But the idea would be, you would recline, you would be, on your, you would be resting on your left hand so that your right hand could reach to the table, and you could dip in all the things, and they would be around, and on the table around. But your feet would hang off the end, and you would have a number of people on these various couches with their feet hanging off, reaching in, talking amongst each other and here on all these couches. And in these couches, there are typical places of traditional meal setting. And this would be true not only in the Greco-Roman world, but also in the Jewish world, okay? And in the Jewish world, there's a number of things. Here, let's see if we can find some of these, some of these places here. Um, I have name tags or, or uh, seating arrangements here. So there are three couches, and there are traditional places of honor. So Typically speaking, this couch, this couch would be where the host sits, okay? The host would typically sit here at, at the head of what is essentially the family couch. Whoever's on this couch would typically be, would be part of the family of the person hosting the meal, okay? This is the family couch, So it's open on this end, by the way, so servants can come around and put food on the table from the open end, but that's, but, so no one would be on that end, but you would have the three couches around that. So the host would be here. What you would have is that everything else would be really in, depending on your proximity to the host. The places of honor at any meal 
would be dependent on your proximity to the host. And so what you would have is you would have the place of honor at the meal, but really the highest place of honor would be on the guest couches, place of honor, for those you can't see, closest to the host. So if the host is leaning this way to eat, the place of honor would be facing the host. Everybody would essentially be facing the host, but the most honor would be here. And then you would have a descending order of honor as you move away from the host until you get to the lesser places of honor at the end of the guest couch. And this is something, we, we see this in the other Gospels. That, um, remember Jesus, he has a critique of the Pharisees because when they show up at a feast, they like to sit in the places of honor. Okay, do you remember that in, in the synoptics in Matthew, Mark, and Luke? He talks about that. And so Jesus' advice is, when you're invited to a feast, where should you sit? Sit in the lesser spots and then be called up. Like it's more honorable to be called up. It's horrible to be like, hey, I'm going to assume that I'm in this place. And then you have to be sent down, right? So Jesus says, take, like, take the lesser spots and maybe you'll get called up, but don't, don't presume that you're going to be in the spot. The Pharisees, they're the ones who, they love the places of honor, and they'll come in, and they'll, they'll be jockeying for this. And you see this among the, the, the disciples, like, who is the most, who's the greatest among us? Like in the other Gospels, on the night that Jesus is betrayed, they actually have a discussion among themselves, who's the greatest among them? And you have to imagine, maybe that's about who gets to sit where, right? So in a traditional triclinium setting in not only the Greco-Roman world, but also in the Jewish world at this time, it is interesting because at, if this is a Passover meal, um, in typical everyday life, you would just sit down to eat, but in a, in like a big f- a feast, a, a dapnon, a, a supper, you would recline. And in the Passover meal, one of the important things about the Passover meal is that you're supposed to be, you're supposed to be unhurried because it's supposed to be it's supposed to have a, crit- a critique on, in the early Passover, it was about eating in haste. We had to eat unleavened bread. We didn't have time. We didn't have time. Now that God has delivered us, we have time. We have time to dip. We have time to eat. We're going to recline, okay? So the reclining nature of the meal is partially because it is a big meal, partially because it's symbolic that God has delivered us in the Passover. And so we have this sort of a setting when we look at like a Greco-Roman, a Greco-Romanized version of like a Passover meal. All right, you guys with me? You guys with me a little bit? Okay. So one of the things that we're going to do is we're, it, we, in order to understand what Jesus does, we have to understand who's sitting where and where he is sitting. So let's take a look at this. What does Jesus do? Look at 13.3. 13.3. It says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, he rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now here's the deal. From the clues in the text, it seems as though Jesus was operating as the host of the Passover meal. He is the teacher, he is the greatest among them, and it's very likely that Jesus was operating as the host of 
the meal. The host of a Passover meal would give the cues about and all the symbolic teaching and what's going on. And so Jesus is very likely operating as the host. It also makes sense, the one of greater honor, like later on, we're going to see that Jesus is going to say in verse 12, look, just look down in verse 12. In verse 12, it says, when he had washed their feet and put back on his outer garments and resumed his place, then he says, then he says to them, do you understand what I've done? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right. Like, look where I'm sitting. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are correct in that understanding. So the idea that after Jesus, so Jesus goes from this spot, he does whatever he does, he dresses how he's going to dress, I'll talk about the significance of that, but then when he comes back to this spot after doing what he just did, he's saying, look, do you, do you understand what I've just done? I'm, I'm the most honorable among you, and what have I just done? Okay, so the point here, I think that Jesus is the host, the one of the greatest honor. We also have the guest of honor, but the host is the one by whom all the honor uh, kind of gravitationally flows, okay? All right, so let's keep going, and let's see what we have here. So not only about Jesus' place, that he's the teacher, the leader, that he would have been in the host spot, but Jesus does this, at, at the place of the most honor, the place where all the honor is, is the place where everybody is looking toward, what does he do? He gets up from the table. Look at verse 4. So his place, that's Jesus' place. Let's talk about how he's dressed. 13.4. He rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments. And taking a towel, he ties it around his waist. Now, the only people who dressed like that, without an outer garment and with a towel tied around their waist, were slaves. Only slaves. He, what Jesus does is he gets up from the place of the most honor and he takes off his garments and he dresses himself like a slave. And I don't think we totally, like, we have to read through the lines to see this, but Jesus is essentially, he's enacting what he has done, who in the very form of God did not consider equality with God something to be held on, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. This is what the Apostle Paul's talking about in Philippians chapter 2. This is what John is alluding to now in the Last Supper, that Jesus goes from the place of most honor now to the place of least honor as a slave. Everyone else would have had on their tunics, their outer garments, but Jesus strips down to the clothes of a servant of a slave. In some ways, in some ways, he is foreshadowing the sort of dress that he would have on the cross, where they're gambling for his clothes. He's been stripped of his clothes. They gamble for his clothes, and he's foreshadowing this. This is an act of humility, and it will be, there will eventually be a greater act of humil humiliation to come, but Jesus is doing this at the Last Supper. So Jesus' place is as the host. Jesus' dress, though, is as a slave. And then Jesus' action. It says that he, get, he, pour, uh, he laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel around his waist. He poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. So he starts to do essentially slave work. He's dressed like a servant, like a slave, and now he starts to do work 
like a slave. He took off his outer garments. He, because of the reclining position, we talked about this, and it makes sense because we talked about Mary from Bethany, and when she comes to Jesus, Jesus in that, in that meal was probably sitting here. Back when, in, back with, when she anoints him with the, with the costly, the, the pure nard oil, right? That um, he's probably, because they're throwing it in honor of him, he's probably here. She comes behind him because, again, the feet are hanging off the end. All the focus of attention at a meal like this is in the middle. You could easily, you could easily, quietly, behind, come up and start to wash feet quietly from behind. See, I can, I can hide from you all, right? Okay, but behind, you can see this is not something that everybody's going to notice. You could easily get up, sneak off, and start to wash feet. People over here might not even see it happen. So Jesus gets up, and he starts to lower himself at their feet. Now, a couple of things about this. Remember John the Baptist? John the Baptist is like, hey, one's coming, one's coming, and I'm not even worthy to untie his sandal. See, taking off someone's shoes, that's slave work, and John is saying, look, someone's coming after me. I'm not even worthy to do the slave work for them, but to get a sense of what feet mean in the ancient world. Some of you are like, you don't have to tell me how disgusting feet are, okay? And I, I hear you guys, I hear you guys. But we, we live in a world of socks and shoes. We don't walk around in dust, but like in some cultures, and some of you guys know this, I was talking with Marcia at our staff meeting, that when, you, when she went to India, they were like, you can't even cross your legs for fear that you might insult someone by showing them the bottom of your foot. Like in some cultures, just showing the bottom of your foot is an insult. And so this idea that we're, we're back into a world like that where you're walking around and, and they have dirty feet and the slaves are supposed to clean the feet. John the Baptist says, look, I'm not even worthy. Mary, Mary, remember Mary, she's like, I'm, the only thing soft enough, soft enough to touch his feet is my hair. So like, so the feet, the feet, even the, the disgusting feet of the Messiah, like are, are amazing, right? So, but all this to say, feet work, that's for slaves. And Jesus starts to go around with a basin, with water, not like sitting position. See, when we do it, when they're like sitting, I'll use, I'll use Dennis's stool here. When you're washing someone's feet, the way kind of we do it today, and you're sitting, and you're like, you're like and someone's like right there, you're like, that's the center of attention, right? You're like, oh my gosh, somebody's washing my, washing my feet. And it, it really puts the attention on the person who's doing it. But if you're in this situation, the attention is not on the washer. The washer is, is a lowly, lowly person who is doing it quietly behind the scenes, essentially. Be, literally behind the scenes. So Jesus' action is an action of humility, of service, really of slavery, and here we come to our first observation about this passage, just a couple things. There's three observations that I want to make this morning about this passage, and the first one is this. And I don't usually do fill-in-the-blanks on your outlines. I'm not a big fill-in-the-blank guy, but I've got some fill-in-the-blanks today, okay? I hope you all, for those of you who like fill-in-the-blanks, and because I don't do that because sometimes I won't hit a point and somebody will come back and go, what's the blank? What do we fill in the blank? And I'm like, I don't know, sometimes I, anyway, I don't, I'm not a big fill-in-the-blank person, but here we go, okay? So the observation number one, the most powerful and honored in the kingdom of God are called to serve. It's very difficult to find what is, what is the, what's the equivalent today? What would be the equivalent today? 
Because we, we live in a world of socks and shoes and very clean feet. I mean, even so, feet are very disgusting anyway. So, but we, we live in a world where it's not nearly as, as difficult. But I, I, here's an accurate parallel, I think. It would be like if, if the president of the United States in the middle of a meal with dignitaries got up from the head table and began to work the coat check station or parking cars in the parking lot or if like that the president got up and started to do the dishes or pull liners out of the trash can that would be what this is like cleaning the bathroom getting up from a meal to clean the bathroom so you get, you get a sense out of this. Note what Jesus says in 13.12. 13.12. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said, do you, know, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right. I am your teacher. You are my disciples. I am your teacher. You are my disciples. And what does he say? If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Notice here, it's interesting because he's, it's kind of this on-ramp. Like, how do you get into this on-ramp of service? He's like, look, I am your Lord and teacher, and I wash your feet. But what I want you to do is I want you to wash one another's feet. I want you to wash your peers' feet, at least. The call will be, the call will be eventually, you will, you, will, you will follow my lead and you will wash the feet of those who are essentially under your authority. But in the meantime, what I need you to do is I need you to at least wash each other's feet. Peer to peer. I need you to do that. I need you to do that. You've seen what I've done and I at least need you to jump on board here and I need you to, to serve each other. I have given you an example, verse 15, that you should do just as I have done to you. So the first, the first point, the first observation, the most powerful, like Jesus, are called to serve. But it brings us to our second observation, that this is not just that Jesus has done this, but this is an example. This is an example to follow. Now, on Good Friday... When we were in here, we celebrated something that Jesus and Jesus alone can do, and that is to take our sins away by his sacrifice. There, there are things that only Jesus can accomplish. Only Jesus can do this. But there are other things as we have our faith in Jesus, we follow Jesus. The word disciple is literally a learner, a follower. There are things that, yes, Jesus and Jesus alone can do, but there are things that Jesus does that we are called to emulate. We're never going to take away the sins of the world. That's Jesus' work. But we are going to love our neighbors. And this idea that this is an example to follow, there are ways that we are called to follow him, to emulate him, to be like him. And that really is the call of coming to faith in Jesus. The, The call is to become more and more like Jesus. And as we're in places of honor, in our world, we live in the world, right? 
We live in the world, and Jesus had, John has a big thing about the world. The world is, is, is against God. The world has its own ways of doing things, its own patterns of doing things, but what Jesus is doing is he's bringing the kingdom of God onto our world, and we're in this world, and we might, have been, we might be given places of authority, places of honor, maybe in our workplace, maybe among the people that we serve in our, or the people that we live with in our neighborhood. We're given honor. We're given authority. We're invested with a certain amount of investment by our, whoever um, employs us or, or whatever we, we have done. And in the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of God, the posture of Jesus is the posture of the kingdom. Jesus is an example of stooping down. This is not just something that Jesus does. This is something that he calls his followers to do, to humble themselves. Just as he self-emptied himself, he calls his followers to empty themselves. His example for them is not that they stoop, again, not below their station, but to serve their peers. Look at 1334. 1334 is the new commandment. Look at verse 34. He says, look, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. Look at 1335. By this, all people will know you are my disciples if you do this thing. If you love one another, you serve one another. All people will know that you are my disciples if you are, they'll know you're my followers if you do the crazy self-emptying thing that I'm doing which is loving you in a way that you probably have never been loved. You've never had your host assume a position of a slave and wash your feet at the meal. It will be so shocking to the world that they will have no no choice but to recognize that something strange is going on in the world. Self-emptying love for each other, for your peers. Self-emptying love for those over whom you have authority. You use your honor to serve. Like I said, there are some things that Jesus and Jesus alone can do, like take away the sins of the world, but there are things that Jesus does that we are called to emulate, and this is one of them. This is probably the central one. And this gets us to our third observation. It's going to take us a little while to get there because we have to look at some of the other meal details. You guys with me? Verse 21. Look at verse 21. After saying these things, so after doing all of this, Jesus is troubled in his spirit. Like really, he, he, he starts, and again, this is the Gethsemane sort of moments that he has in the Gospel of John. And he testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And the disciples looked around at each other. Who is, like, who is it? Who's the person? There's, we're all sitting at the table. Jesus just washed all of our feet. Who is it? So Jesus, in the middle of the meal, he drops this bomb. And you can get the kind of the sort of, of looks that go around the table. And then we get a little bit of more information. Look at verse 23. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved was reclining at Jesus' side. So at his back, essentially. Um, and it says, uh, one of his disciples, and this is the, uh, the disciple whom Jesus loved. 
So verse 24, so Simon Peter motioned him to ask Jesus whom he was speaking. So, the disciple whom Jesus loved is probably John, no doubt sitting on the family couch because he has this very clear sense of who he is. I am the disciple whom Jesus loves, so I'm going I'm to sit right next to him. I'm not going to presume the place of honor, but I'm going to sit next to him. John is sitting next to Jesus. It is interesting because Jesus does say to John, at, at, while he's on the cross, and we'll look at this, that his mother's there, and he knows he can't take care of his mother anymore, so he says to John, behold your mother, Mary, behold your son, that he gives the, so there is the sense in which John is beloved of Jesus and entrusted with Jesus with things beyond that all the other disciples are. So, so John is reclining to him, and so Simon Peter doesn't talk to him, but motions to him. Now, if Simon Peter were close to John, he might just ask him, but John is close to Jesus, so where is Peter? It's, it's interesting because Peter's the one who objects, right? Peter's the only one that we have recorded that he objects. If you look back in chapter 13 and you look at, um, look at verse 8, actually, sorry, look at verse, um, verse 4, 6. What am I? I can't even find. Numbers, do they mean anything? Look at verse 6. He came to Simon Peter who said, Lord, do you wash my feet? If I were to guess, Peter might have ended up here. Somewhere, but he's somewhere away. He can't talk to John. He's got to be like, John, John, who's he talking about? Who's he talking about? Point him out. Okay? So he's got a, he's got a motion to him. John, John, look at me, look at me. Okay, so John, so Peter is somewhere over here. And I think it's really interesting because in some examples, when you don't have servants, the person who's responsible to do the foot washing sits at the end of the table down here. Maybe someone younger. And it could have been, there could have been this sense in which P Jesus is going around doing what Peter was supposed to be doing. And that's why Peter's like, hey, are you washing my feet? And Jesus is like, I am washing your feet, right? And so, and he's like, so anyway, Pete, it, that's speculation, okay, speculation. Why don't we just put Peter up here? He's somewhere away from John. But he's lesser on this, on this night. So John, equal to this, John, you know, John is right to Jesus' right. He's on one of the spots on the family couch. Intimacy, friendship, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Anyway, Peter's away from that. So Simon Peter motions to him, verse 24, who are you talking about? He gestures, he nods. And so John, being kind of equal to the task, is like, hey, Jesus, who are you talking about? Okay. Nobody knows this is going on. Peter's like, hey, and John's like, okay, give me a second. You know, Jesus, what's up? And so Jesus then, equal to the task, is like, whoever I dip this to, whoever I dip this in and give it to them, that's the guy. Okay, so, so it's all this the quiet, quiet talk around the table. He goes, it's, it's, the, it's who I give the morsel of bread. So I'm going to dip this bread in some hummus and I'm going to hand it to somebody. Now here's the deal. Who is the only person within arm's reach of Jesus? Jesus. 
it's very likely that Judas is sitting in the place of honor. I mean, wrap your head around that. Maybe Jesus is because he's the money bag carrier. But on the night that he is going to betray Jesus, it's very likely that Judas has found himself in the place of honor. And Jesus has gone around and washed his feet. And this is where, this is where it gets... You've seen what I've done. I am your Lord and your teacher, and I have washed your feet. I want you to wash one another's feet. But here, and this is our third observation, look, serve the people you love, but you've also got to love and serve your enemies. You've got to love and serve your betrayers. What? <laughs> I mean, Jesus, if you read the Sermon on the Mount, come, come, he comes right out and says, he says, look, even, even the pagans love the people who love them. What I'm calling you to is to love the people who hate you, to serve the people who are your rivals, your enemies. Serve them. Then they will know that the kingdom has come. Then they will know that I have shown up. Then they will know that God is at work because no person would ever do that. Judas is in the place of honor, and Jesus washes his feet. This is why when we do the Lord's Supper, and we read in the, um, in 1 Corinthians, it says, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, on the very night that he's betrayed, Jesus does these acts of service and chooses, that's the night I need to renew the covenant because I need them to know, no matter how horrible they are, I am not going to ever forsake them. Ever, ever, ever. I will love them to the end. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will wash your feet if you betray me. I will wash your feet if you deny me. I will love you to the end. There is no greater love than a man who lays down his life for his friends. Jesus gives that example, and he says, you follow my example. They will know that the kingdom has come. If you do what is totally counterintuitive to who you are and what you have learned in this world, they will know that you are my disciples if you love one another, even if you've been betrayed. Even if you've been betrayed. He's a betrayer and Jesus serves him. Jesus uses his place of honor and authority to give self-emptying love. You know, I feel like in my own lifetime, I've experienced this in various ways. I, I, yeah, I'm going to shift down now. That was a lot. Um, <laughs> I think on a practical level, for me, I've experienced this in various ways in my own life, in my own ministry life, of men who have poured into me, who have mentored me, that I have seen them serve me and that have been able to serve alongside. I remember when I, um, when I became a believer, um, one of the people who began to mentor me was a friend of mine, Michael Anthony, um, who was uh, working at Woodbridge Community Church, 
and uh, he had two PhDs and like super smart and whatever. And here I am, I'm this 14-year-old kid, and he's like, um, hey, we need to put uh, bark chips into, the, um, into the, the playground. And so I'm having a bunch of bark chips, um, but would you do it with me? And so um, the cool thing was he rented a bobcat. You guys know those little with the little, we had, neither of us had any business operating that machinery. Okay, but we did. We did that, and then we're shoveling. We're shoveling these chips around, and here's this guy. Like, he, 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 that's not his. His job was not to do that, but he was doing that, and I was doing that with him. And I think the cool thing was that day, that very day later, he was getting engaged, and he chose to spend that day before that with me. Fourteen-year-old kid driving a bobcat. <laughs> like, look again. No one was injured. God was gracious. Okay, um, but that, that's one thing. I think another, for me, a formative, formative experiences, and I think it's just a good example of someone who, their position, they chose to self-empty and to serve alongside. I think when I was 18 years old, I was working up at Hume Lake Christian Camps. My first summer up there, I was working maintenance, right? I thought I should run everything, but I was working maintenance. Okay, this is just the way my brain works. Um, you get it. God's humbled. There's lots of humbling. Humble yourself or God will do it for you. Okay. Um, but I was, so I was working on the, in maintenance and like we were just, my job was basically they'd cut down trees and you would, um, and then you would cut off all the, uh, all the branches and all the branches, we, it's slag. We called it slag. And you just pull slag all day. That was what it was. So I finished the day. I just have sap all over me, whatever. You throw it into the thing. But what I, what I found was that um, the, the executive director had chosen on a certain day to come out and to cut and pull slag with us. The executive director of the whole camp. I mean, there's thousands of kids in the camp, and this guy's out pulling slag. This is Bob Phillips. He's just pulling slag, throwing it in. He's got an axe, and he's chopping stuff off. And I'm like, look, as long as this guy's working, I'm working. Right? It's a powerful example when you have someone who is serving and leading. I think what's cool, we just hired a new executive director up at Hume, and there's been a lot of rain. I don't know if you guys knew this, but there's been a lot of rain and snow. But after snow and there's a lot of rain, it means there's a lot of water because a lot of the snow melts, right? And so some of the roads had washed out, and so they put out a call, hey, um, we need people to fill up sandbags. And you know who the first person there was? Our new executive director. And he's got a shovel, and he's filling up bags, with sand. It's not his job. It's not his job. But that's what he's doing. He's filling up sandbags because he understands this, and good leaders understand this. I think those have been significant examples to me in my life of faith and ministry. I think what's cool is that here at Taft, I'm, I, I can say this, and a lot of you guys don't, a lot of you guys don't get to see, this is the one thing about being a pastor, you, I get to see a lot of, I don't get to see everything, but I get to see a lot of stuff. And I, I just want to tell you, I have seen so many incredible acts of compassion and kindness happen by people who are sitting in this room. Things that you would never, you will never know about. You will never, ever know about. And I have seen some of the most kind, compassionate acts of service and humble service to their brothers and sisters that you will ever, ever see. And you, no one will ever see these things. But I just want to tell you, you look around and you, I, you, would, you, can, you can bet that the people around you have done these sorts of things. They have loved one another as Jesus has loved them. And I, it, it's, it's such a, it's so meaningful to be able to say that. 
and to look around and to know those of you who have done those things, just behind the scenes things. I mean, this last Easter, there are people working in the kitchen, over many Easter's before, and many things that you'll never ever see. Jesus has walked before us and he served us, and we're called to serve each other and to reach beyond our own circles to offer love, care, service, compassion, even to those who are our rivals. And I think this is the thing about love, and, and the Apostle Paul says it, that, hey, look, you're, you're doing well in love. I hope that you excel still more, that you would not only serve your peers, but that you would serve those below you, that you would serve your rivals, your enemies, excel still even more. And I think as we gather even today, as we kind of land this plane, I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. As I ask you guys just this one question, like just in this moment, in this, in this time of hearing about Jesus, who do you feel like the Holy Spirit is putting on your heart to serve? As you hear this passage, as you hear what Jesus has done, as you hear kind of the significance of what he has done, I, I, you can take your, thank you, Dennis. We, we imagine that we don't just come here to play church. We come here because we believe that God's presence, that the Holy Spirit is at work in our hearts. And that when we hear teaching like this on this topic, that we would imagine that the Holy Spirit starts to put people on our hearts. Maybe even remind of things that you've done in the past. Like the Holy Spirit is so good about encouraging. Like if, if you're like, if you're like, if you feel like, look, I hear this and I'm like, man, I feel horrible, I feel like nobody because I don't feel like I've done this. Like, that's not the Holy Spirit, that's the devil. The devil is a voice of condemnation. But if the whole, if you're like here, if, if you feel like, hey, oh yeah, I remember, I remember that, that was a cool thing and, and like God did that. Like, that's probably the Holy Spirit and probably like, hey, you could probably reach out to this person. Like, that's the Holy Spirit. The devil is never gonna tell you to reach out to anybody to serve anybody. The devil will condemn you. Like, if you feel condemnation, like say, look, devil, Take a walk, like you have been defeated, defeated, big time, made a shame of, okay? Now let's talk about what the Holy Spirit, like, we imagine the Holy Spirit's at work. Who is God putting on your heart? Where is the sense of excelling in love? So I just want to take a second. Let's just close our eyes and just, just ask. Let's ask expectantly that if the Holy Spirit would, would reveal to us just a person, maybe a situation that might be meaningful, helpful, just in this, in the example of Jesus. And we come here, Jesus, to interact with you. Sometimes you're a mystery to us, but we come here to receive guidance, to worship you. Would you move us in the direction of other people? You provide opportunity for us to serve. And just reminder, would you encourage us? I know these might be hard to do, to lay aside our honor to serve. But would you remind us? Jesus, we're so grateful for what you've done that we cannot do. You've paid for our sins. You've absorbed our shame. You've reconciled us to the Father. 
but we also thank you for the example that you've given to us that we also might empty ourselves for the sake of not just our brothers and sisters but of those for those who do not like us would you give us the strength and courage to love you all the more and to love them all the more we pray in Jesus name